series, well, well, well first, first two chapters of Acts, and we're, we're doing the, the study through Acts over the next few weeks. Um, so our first reading um, basically sort of sets a bit of context around Pentecost. So if I can ask Rachel, please, to come and bring us that reading. first reading is from Leviticus chapter 23, reading verses 15 to 21. From the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks. Count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. From wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two tenths of an ephah of fine flour, baked with yeast, as a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. Present with this bread seven male lambs, each a year old and without defect, one young bull and two rams. They will be a burnt offering to the Lord, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Then sacrifice one male goat for a sin offering and two lambs, each a year old, for a fellowship offering. The priest is to wave the two lambs before the Lord as a wave offering together with the bread of the first fruits, They are a sacred offering to the Lord for the priest. On that same day, you are to proclaim a sacred assembly and do no regular work. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, wherever you live. Thank you, Rachel. <clears throat> we don't normally look at Leviticus and all the details of how you do your sacrifices and things. And it struck me as we were um, listening to, to Rachel reading there that worship in, in sort of Jesus' time and before would have been a pretty noisy, messy, smelly affair. But what we had there was the, 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 um, the, the instructions from God for how to, how to worship at what was called at the if you saw in the title, the Feast of Weeks, uh, which is something you might have heard of, and that's also Pentecost. Um, the name Pentecost comes from the Greek for 50th, um, and that's because it was 50 days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the, the week directly following straight on from Passover. It was called Feast of Weeks because it's seven weeks and one day after the one before. And it was one of the three annual festivals that God told the people of Israel to, to celebrate. So they had, they had Passover and unleavened bread, which followed straight on. And then seven weeks in a day or 50 days after, they had the Feast of Weeks. And then sort of round, roundabout kind of autumn time for us, they had the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Shelters, which was kind of like a, a, a celebration of the final harvest um, but the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, was kind of like a, an early harvest celebration. So it was um, seven weeks and a day after they'd started bringing in the grain, and it was to celebrate bringing in the, the grain harvest. So it was a, a harvest festival, and it falls kind of around our springtime. So if you like, it's spring harvest for Old Testament times. It's a, a time for a redeemed people to celebrate God's blessings. And in, in the Old Testament times, the redemption came from the sacrifice. So there was the bit where it talked about the sin offering 
and the fellowship offering. Um, and there's some sort of strange images of priests waving lambs at God. Um, they must have been strong blokes, to be honest, because lambs are quite heavy. But there we go. Um, but it struck me reading that, that when we celebrate Pentecost now, it's a time for a redeemed people to celebrate God's blessings. We're redeemed not because we've sacrificed goats and bulls and baked loaves of bread, but because we remember that Jesus died and he was the final sacrifice. One last thing to pick up from that reading at the end, it, it was a requirement. It was a, it was a holy holiday. You did no work whatsoever. And there was a requirement that every Jewish male should attend the sanctuary, so the synagogue if you lived in a small town or if you were in Jerusalem, the temple. And lots of people would have made trips specially to Jerusalem to go to the temple for Pentecost. So with that in mind, Jerusalem would have been absolutely heaving at the time that we're looking at now in Acts chapter 2. So can I ask Steve to bring us that reading? This is Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 15 and 41 to 42. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. When the day of of Pentecost came, they were all gathered together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it each of us hears them in, our own, in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They've had too much wine. Peter addresses the crowd. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Those who accepted his message were baptised And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Amen. Thanks, Steve. So Jerusalem was was busy. It said there 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 were Jews from, from every nation 
under heaven. So for those of you who've been to Spring Harvest, busier than the skyline on a wet day in Minehead or Skegness. It wasn't that funny, Alice. It's, uh, it's interesting to think our story kind of started with the, the people gathered together and a lot of people think they were gathered in, in the upper room where they'd had the, the final supper. And when I was preparing for, for today, my initial thought was to kind of talk about how they were all basically scared and hiding. And then I did a bit more reading and uh, I was kind of pointed in the direction of Luke chapter 24, verse 49. And that's not that one. It's that one. Where Jesus says to his disciples, I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So before he went, Jesus, one of Jesus' last instructions, just before the Great Commission and the Ascension was stay here and wait for the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, it says, They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So this wasn't a group of people scared and in hiding. This was a group of people meeting together and faithfully waiting for the promise that Jesus had made them, obeying what Jesus had said, probably keeping a low profile, to be fair, because there was all the fuss and furore and hoo-ha because Jesus had risen from the dead and people were saying, no, he hadn't, and people were accusing them of having stolen the body and all sorts. But they weren't necessarily in hiding, perhaps. So we start with them in the upper room, prayerfully waiting, prayerfully anticipating this, this outpouring that God's promised through Jesus. And then it comes. And let's be honest, I don't think at any point any of them kind of looked afterwards and went, do you think that was God? I think I felt something, but I'm not sure. It talks about it. The spirit coming like a rushing wind, making a noise like a roaring wind, and tongues of fire, or what looked like tongues of fire, landing on everyone's head. Now, at one point, I did say to Rachel, it would be quite good to kind of count how many folk are in today and see if there's 120 of us. And then I thought, well, maybe not. That might, might be depressing. Or we might just have run out of tickets if we give everybody a ticket up to 120, and that would be nice too. It wasn't a small group, but they were upstairs in, a, in an upper room. However, the arrival of the Holy Spirit caused such a commotion that everybody around comes to this house to see what on earth is going on. There's a house in Jerusalem where there's this noise coming from upstairs that sounds like a roaring wind, and it's not Rachel snoring. I've got recordings. <laughs> Does anyone have a spare room? 
<laughs> so far. There was no doubt to the people in the room that something was happening, but there was no doubt to the people around, outside, that something was happening. Imagine that. Imagine the Holy Spirit coming here in such a way that the houses round about and the pub and whatever people are like, what on earth is going on in that church? We, we've got to go and see what's happening because it sounds crazy. What we hear about is, is basically a, a, a two-part miracle, if you like. The first part is, is the Holy Spirit coming to set up the church. And a lot of people say that some of what happened at the, the first Pentecost that we, that we celebrate as the birth of the church was a one-off. It was the Holy Spirit doing what the Holy Spirit needed to do to set up the church. And we shouldn't expect those same things to happen again. But as well, there was an individual equipping of each person in that room ready to do the task that God had for them to do. So we hear this roaring wind and then there's what looks like tongues of fire landing on each person. Now some folks say that we shouldn't expect the Holy Spirit to appear as tongues of fire landing on people's heads anymore. Personally, I would say if the Holy Spirit wants to do that, the Holy Spirit will do that and whether I think he's going to do it or not makes no difference. Some people say that we shouldn't expect the miracle that happens where, as every person was speaking, everyone who heard, heard it in their own language. Now, I know that I've been to Spring Harvest and people have talked about someone praying in tongues and someone behind them saying, how did you know that I spoke a rare form of ancient Russian and why are you praying in my language? So I've heard that that happened. So I'm a bit... I don't like to disagree with scholars because they know a lot more than me, but to be honest, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the thing. But what we can all expect, whether we disagree about some things being a one-off or not, we can all expect that God has a plan for us and that God's Holy Spirit can equip us with the right skills, the right tools, the right physical attributes, if you like, or the, the, the emotional strength and the courage to do what God wants us to do. It was a miracle that all these people that came from all over the world and suddenly gathered outside this house with the massive wind going on inside all suddenly understood what was being said by these 120 people. Now, the first part of the miracle is that they were Galileans. And Galileans weren't the easiest of people to understand at the best of times. Have you ever seen Trollerman on the telly? The one about the the, the documentary about the the Trollerman from Peterhead and Bucky and up there. And some of them got upset because the BBC put subtitles on, (laughs) even although they were speaking English, as far as they were concerned. Now, they do speak a strange form of English up in the northeast of Scotland. They call it the Doric, and so they use completely different words for things. So I'm not surprised that there was subtitles. Or the hoo-ha about uh, what was the, the Cornish thing last year? Jamaica in, and nobody could understand that guy, could they? When he was, when he was, you know. And we watched it, and we had to put the subtitles on because we didn't have a clue what he was saying. 
Galileans were a bit like that. Even if they were speaking to you in the same language that you thought you knew as them, you didn't have a clue what they were saying half the time. They mumbled and they were just not very clear speakers. So there was a, a kind of a minor miracle that other people from Jerusalem, other, other Jews from Jerusalem, understood these Galileans. And, and they would have just been amazed at that. Jings, there's Galileans speaking and we don't need subtitles. But equally, everyone else, and, and, and it listed in the, in the reading. Can we fire that up, Colin? I can't remember which verse it is, sorry. It was... Nine. Verse nine, there we go. Parthians, Medes, Elamites. Thank you, Steve, for reading them so well. <laughs> and I was reading something, and apparently if, if, if you get a map of, of the, the lands at that time, what that description does is it starts as far east as people knew the, uh, sort of the eastern extent of the Roman Empire and pretty much the known world, and it comes into the west. And then it goes round anti-clockwise, round the sort of the Mediterranean Sea, and then it ends up, it picks up, there's a couple of, there's Crete's mentioned to represent the islands, and then it ends up in Rome, which is the centre of the world, as, as we all know. Um, so even in there, it, you know, God is making clear that this is, this is a message not just for Jerusalem, but a message for the whole world. And they all understand, these 120 people, and they all hear, whether it's a miracle of the, the speech or whether it's a miracle of the hearing. Some people think that perhaps the miracle was that people heard in their own language what these people were saying, and some people say, no, they were, they were speaking it in, in a foreign language, but they didn't know it. In either event, everyone heard their own language being spoken. Now, as a Scotsman living in England, and Jack's not in today, is he? He can vouch for me. Ah, Margaret, you'll know. You'll be in a crowd and then suddenly you'll hear a familiar accent and your ears tune in and you go, ha-ha. Sorry, Emily. <laughs> and you think, ah, there's a voice I recognise. And you kind of sidle up, oh, where are you from? Ah. You know. And if you've ever been somewhere where, you know, even though it's, it's somewhere in the UK, the local accent is different to your own, and then suddenly there's someone with the same accent as yours, you kind of latch onto it and you go, oh. It's, it's human nature. We all like to hear people speaking in a way we understand. And God understands that better than any of us. And so the important part of this, this miracle of people all hearing God in their own language is that everybody went... God sounds like me. God speaks my language. God must get me. You know, when you meet someone who's, who, you know, you're on holiday or something and you meet someone who's from near where you live, you immediately start swapping stories about, do you know such and such a place? Have you had such and such a local delicacy to eat? Deep fried cream eggs or whatever. Because there's a bond there, there's a connection. And that's what God was saying to these people from all around the world. I know you. I get you. I'm from where you're from. There's a connection here. I'm not just some kind of distant God that speaks a funny language that you'll have to learn to be able to understand me. I speak your language. 
And at that point, the church, as we know it, quite literally, and literally is an often misused word, but I'm going to stick to my guns, it quite literally burst out of an upper room in Jerusalem. And over the next few weeks, we'll be hearing how it started from that upper room in Jerusalem, and it spread right across the world. I was reading a book ages ago, and I couldn't find it to bring it to quote it accurately, so I'll paraphrase but it's a short history of almost everything by Bill Bryson, who's a travel writer, and he decided he was going to write a science book in a travel book style so that people could understand it. And he basically said, each person alive today is only alive because every single one of their ancestors decided to have kids. If at any point, back down the line, someone had decided they didn't fancy having kids, you wouldn't be here. And for most of us, the only reason we're here in church is because someone spoke to us and told us about God. And they only told us about God because someone had told them about God. And they only told them. And if you think back like that, we can all trace our roots as Christians back to an upper room in Jerusalem where the Holy Spirit came and 120 people burst out of an upper room and said, blah, 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 blah. And someone went, huh, he's speaking while I speak. I didn't think anyone else spoke blah, blah, but there we go. So we can all trace our roots back to an upper room in Jerusalem, and we're all only here because someone told someone who 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 told someone. You might well be here because... Paul told someone who told someone who told someone who told someone. Peter told someone who told someone who told someone. Now, obviously, Paul's a good example of how sometimes God just speaks straight into some people's hearts. So that might not be the case for all of us. But anyway. The other thing that's worth noting, though, in this, in this reading is that then as now, when something miraculous happens... There is no shortage of people waiting to go, nah, nah, it's not a miracle. Nah, they're drunk, they've been on the wine. Can't be real. There must be another explanation. It's not, it's not right. No, that's not God. That's just, that's just drunk. That's not wind. That's just Rachel. Just because a miracle happens and we see it as a miracle doesn't mean that everyone else will see it as a miracle. That doesn't mean it's not a miracle. That just means they're not ready to see it. And we can pray that they will be ready to see it. And we can pray that the next time there's a miracle, they'll be ready to see it. Or that eventually the overwhelming number of miracles gets to the point where they go, well, they can't all be coincidences. There must be something in it. And who is it that gets up and explains to people who are saying, nah, it's not a miracle, they're just drunk? Peter. I like Peter. I've said this before. When you read the, the Gospels, Peter's the disciple who just like charges in and then starts thinking about the consequences after. You know, the, the walking on water. He's like um, 
wily coyote chasing Roadrunner off a cliff. You know, and he's off there, and you know, before he realizes it, he's halfway across the water, and he thinks, oh, I shouldn't be walking on water, and then he sinks. Peter is kind of an inspiration to us all. But let's not do the man a disservice. Luke chapter 22. And Luke's a good, good gospel to read in connection with Acts because Luke wrote Acts. So it's kind of like Luke 1 and Luke 2, the sequel. But Luke chapter 22. And I, I looked this up by mistake, as it were. I was looking for another bit and my Bible sort of said, had a little heading and I looked at it and I went, oh, that's the bit I'm looking for. And it wasn't, but it, it was, if you know what I mean. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 34, and it's Jesus talking to Peter and he sometimes called him Simon, didn't he? So he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, Strengthen your brothers. But he, that's Simon Peter, replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. And we all know that bit about Jesus telling Simon Peter that he would deny him. But I'd forgotten the bit that came before where Jesus said, your faith won't fail you. And when you come back to me, strengthen your brothers. So we read in, in verses 54 to 62 of, of chapter 22. Then after seizing Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they'd kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight, she looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the cock crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. We remember that bit. But we forget the bit that Jesus said before he told him he would do that, that he would come back. So in Acts chapter 2, we hear the guy, the same guy, the same big burly fisherman from Galilee who was hard to understand, who had denied that he even knew Jesus because a really scary little servant girl had said, you were with him. And he's the one who comes out and speaks to a crowd of, we don't know how many, but it must have been pretty big because 3,000 of them were saved. Unless he had a 100% hit record, hit rate even, which he could have done. Um, but I have to say when you're preparing a sermon and the passage is that the effect of the sermon was that 3,000 people became Christians you kind of feel a wee bit under pressure it's interesting as well how Peter uses what Peter says because the first thing he says is oh they can't be drunk because it's 
It's not 10 o'clock. It's only nine in the morning. In, in, in those days, 10 o'clock was basically breakfast time. So what he's saying is, you can't be drunk. It's not even breakfast time. He's obviously never been on some of the stag do's I've been on. But there we go. Mine. <laughs> but he probably got a laugh out of people, didn't he? You can't say they're drunk. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he quotes scripture. And I did deliberately skip the, the sermon because it's, it's quite long. And, and when I was preparing, I didn't think I wanted to talk about it. And then I decided maybe I did. But there we go. But when you read it in the scripture, he, he, in, the, in the sermon, he quotes scripture and he, he quotes from, from Joel. And he uses testimony. He talks about Jesus. And he says, you knew Jesus. You've seen Jesus. This is who we're talking about. So what's the difference? What makes a burly fisherman who was scared of servant girls suddenly preach to thousands of people? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came on Peter and empowered Peter and equipped Peter and gave him the gift to speak. A Galilean spoke to a crowd and they understood what he said. A Galilean who had denied that he even knew Jesus, preached to people about how awesome Jesus was and what Jesus had done for them personally in such a way that it touched their hearts and 3,000 of them believed. A group of 120 people who were keeping a low profile, keeping their heads down but waiting for the Holy Spirit suddenly burst out of an upper room and changed the world. So how does that apply to us? What was the Kirsty McCall song? I don't want to change the world, I'm just looking for New England. Rachel's got a, a song that she likes by Switchfoot called Chem 6A. Um, but it's a song about a sort of teenager saying, I don't want to have to try and change the world. I, I'm just like everybody else. I just want to do what I want to do. Maybe you sitting going I want the Holy Spirit to fill me but I don't want to have to try and change the world on my own I'm only little I'm too young, too old too tired I'm asleep Poppy, is she asleep? The thing is if we follow what the Holy Spirit prompts us there isn't anything we can't do. A double negative. We can do anything. But you know this. You've been told this loads of times. You've sat in spring harvest. You've sat here and someone said, with the Holy Spirit you can do anything. And we do know that. Sometimes as we know it up here. We know it in our heads because we've been told it. But until we experience it, we don't quite get it we can know it, we can believe it we just don't quite get it I imagine that's what it must have been like for the, the 120 disciples before the Holy Spirit came they would have been praying and they'd have been saying Jesus says he's going to send a helper for us and Jesus says that we should wait and we're praying and we're waiting and we're saying 
please, Lord, send this Holy Spirit. But they didn't know what was going to happen next. The thing is, you don't know necessarily until until you do what God is calling you to do. There's no point sitting thinking, I'm scared to pray for the Holy Spirit because I don't think I could stand up and preach to people. Not everybody's called to preach. I'm lousy at telling people at work that I'm a Christian. Absolutely terrible at it. Thankfully, there's another woman in my team who is really good at it. And we were talking, we have a, a Christian network at work. We've just stopped calling it Christian Fellowship. I don't quite know why, but there we go. We have a Christian network at work. And, uh, and, and they meet at lunch times, and half the time I end up missing the meetings because I've got other meetings and, and whatnot. But last week, just gone, there was a meeting on, and I didn't have anything else at the same time. I thought, I need to make the effort to go. I need to make a commitment to kind of support my fellow Christians at work. And I turned up, and there was... Sandrine from my team and one other bloke Richard you know Richard and, uh, and that was it, there was three of us in this little office and we were talking and we were sharing stories and Sandrine says we were talking about praying for things and she said can we pray for Pete's mum, Pete's our team leader she said because she's, she's really ill, she's basically dying um, which I'd, I'd sort of heard, but um, and she says, Pete was brought up Roman Catholic, and Pete's mum is Roman Catholic, and she says, and I was brought up Roman Catholic, she's French, Sandrine, and she was brought up Roman Catholic, but she's a, um, and she says, I was talking to him about how what the Roman Catholic Church sometimes doesn't teach is that you need to believe for yourself, and you need to make a personal commitment to Jesus and she says I was sharing this with, with, with Pete and I'm thinking wow you're brave <laughs> I don't think I could have done that but she was also saying that she'd, she'd she'd found some information and she'd gone off and she'd found some stuff that she'd shared with her auntie um, and her auntie had found it really helpful so she'd got it for, for Pete to share with, with him for his mum and she said, I was sitting at work, she says, and I, I didn't know whether I should say anything or not. She says, I was really... Ne-. And she says, and then an email came through from the, the Christians at Work Network newsletter, and it said something that made me think, well, well, I should. And then I was reading my Bible, and it said, and, and something came up, and I thought, it said, well, I should. And we were sharing it together, and I said, can I share your story on Sunday? I said, because... She was just the right person, I think, to speak to Pete because she had the same background. I couldn't have spoken to him about what the Roman Catholic Church says because I don't know, but she did. And she could come at that from a, a, I know where you're at and I know what you believe and I know what you've been taught and I can tell you that this is something that perhaps you didn't know. I couldn't have done that, I say. Sandrine didn't think she could do it. But the Holy Spirit prompted her and she followed it and she did it and she said he, he took it in the spirit with which it was meant. He didn't get upset, he didn't get offended. You know, and she says, you know, I hope it was a, a comfort to him. 
You might not be called to change the whole world, but you can change someone's world. We said before, we're perhaps only here because someone told someone who told someone who told someone. Quick straw poll. Put your hands up if you've heard of Albert McMakin. Oh, you might have done. You might have done. Because it's not, he's not totally on, and I might have got the name slightly wrong, but it's definitely McMakin. He's the guy who gave Billy Graham a lift to the Christian rally where Billy Graham became a Christian. He was just giving some kids a lift to the, to the rally. But one of them was Billy Graham. And we know what Billy Graham's done. Billy Graham's preached to thousands, if not millions of people, and thousands, of, if not millions of people have been saved through God speaking through Billy Graham. Put your hands up if you've heard of Dave Breckenridge. No? Alan McFarlane? a test of six degrees of separation. Dave Breckenridge and Alan McFarlane were my Bible school, Bible class teachers when I was a kid. And I was at my mum's church last week and Dave still leads worship at my mum's church. And I was sort of thinking of this week and I thought, it's a bit sort of um, talking about myself and I don't like doing that. But they helped to teach me in the faith and I am where I am today partly because of them. And I kind of wanted to say that while the junior church leaders were still in as well because sometimes it feels like you're sort of talking to these kids and it feels like it's gone in one ear and through the other. And I was a nightmare in, in Bible class. I didn't shut up. I know it's hard to believe because I'm <laughs> actually quite shy. But I must have made... Dave and Alan's life more difficult than it needed to be. I wasn't absolutely terrible. There was one I remember where it was an illustration of, of what it's like to be different. And so the whole group was singing one nursery rhyme and me and this other girl were supposed to sing another nursery rhyme. And I think we were supposed to feel odd and different and it was difficult but we sung it like a football chant and we, <laughs> and we outsung the rest of them and completely ruined the illustration but they stuck at it and they kept teaching and obviously there were other people there were my parents and there were other, other people as well but put your hands up <clears throat> if you've heard and there will be hands going up of Scott Halligan A few years back, Rachel and I bumped into Scott at Spring Harvest. Scott used to come to BB here. And uh, Scott's married now and lives in Leeds. Or he did at the time, he might have moved, I don't know. Um, and we were chatting, how are you doing, Scott? Oh, really good. And Scott said, I just wanted to tell you, and can you tell Mr. B, that at our church, there's me and some other guys, and we're now running a youth group in one of the toughest estates in Leeds because we all went to BB or something like it when we were kids, and it was the best thing that ever happened to us when we were kids, and we wanted to do something for other kids so that they could have something like that. And I wish you could have all seen Mr. B's face when I passed that message on because it meant so much to him. 
sometimes it feels like, because Scott wasn't the easiest of kids either, but a great lad. Sometimes you don't know the effect of something you say to someone right there and then. And whether we'd bumped into Scott or not, it wouldn't have changed what he was doing. The difference was we found out, and it was a huge encouragement to, to me and to Colin and to, to Derek. So just because you don't see results doesn't mean you're not having an effect. I've waffled on a long time, sorry. We can all be history makers if we respond when the Holy Spirit prompts us. Whether he calls us to lead junior church or get involved in a youth group or BB or whether it's to run a Wednesday group for older people or whether it's to preach to thousands or just speak to someone at the bus stop or share something with your auntie. We can all be history makers if we respond when the Holy Spirit prompts us. The results won't always be what we expect. It might even feel like there's not been any results. But the results will always be part of what God planned. I was, uh, I used the same book for taking notes at things. And I was flicking back through because I was looking for something else again and I found something different. Um, when we were at Creation Fest a couple of years ago, I went to one of the sessions and I should have bookmarked this better, sorry. That's not even it. Uh-huh. I apologise. Here we go, Creation Fest. I wrote this down and I guess it applies, well, it, it applies all the time, but it fits today, I think. You're not the hero. Jesus is. And he works through you. It's not about your ability. It's about your availability. Are you open? Are you available to the Holy Spirit to prompt you? It might take that initial step of courage to step out and say, oh, I'm not sure. I don't doubt that Peter maybe kind of had slightly wobbly knees as he stood up. But the Holy Spirit filled him, spoke through him, and the impact was, in that, set, in that case, immediate and awesome and world-changing. When the Holy Spirit's involved, it's always world-changing. It might just be some person, one person's world. It might be the whole world. But if we're available, it's not about our ability, it's about our availability. I will leave it there. Thank you for listening.